0: Tu Ying Ming and Angela Oh, welcome to the new school.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: We're delighted to have you here. We've just spent a weekend with the two of you and some of your friends uh, celebrating uh, the first showing of a remarkable body of your work, uh, uh, Portraits of Compassion. to, could you just begin by introducing us to the art that we've been looking at?
1: This whole um, uh, body of work is, is, uh, is started about seven years ago. And the original uh, uh, idea would come from when, 1987, I, I have gone to Tibet and journeyed to Tibet and one of the night was full moon I was riding down um, a night and uh, there's a sacred lake and the full moon was reflecting on the blue blue lake and, and I was burnt into tears and so the original the portrait the first project I had done was to honor a friend who helped me when I in a very very difficult time, and his name was Scott Elber, and um, so the project was started from out of gratitude mm. and also out of self healing. Mm. So, um, and seven years ago, uh, Angela and I, Angela introduced me to open the gate for this the Zen Temple and <clears> to <throat> that I had taken my uh, meditation seriously and at the time it had shifting how I really shift the process of how I make those portraits. Mm-hmm. So those hundred eight portrait was come out of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Angela, oh um, tell us how this series of portraits uh, affects you. What, what, what does it mean to you to be in partnership with two and to um, help this series of remarkable portraits um, come into the world this way?
2: Well, for me, it uh, has come to represent... Uh, a way of beginning conversation and relationships without words. Because I'm a person of words. That's my training. It's my background. It's the tool I use to maneuver in the world and to be uh, able to exist in the world as a responsible adult. Right. So my training is uh, as a lawyer. But I wasn't a research lawyer and I wasn't a contract lawyer and I wasn't a um, policy person. I was a trial lawyer, so my job was to use words to persuade people. And I didn't persuade people about, oh, you have this obligation under the contract or that obligation to pay me money. My persuasion was around literally uh, sometimes saving a life because I was a criminal defense lawyer in my practice. So... I came to recognize quickly that my job was not so much about how brilliant I could be to identify the issue that had to be raised in order to make a good record on appeal, but it was instead to tell the story of the human being that everybody in that courtroom really hated. They'd done something that violated the rules of society, and they'd done something that violated um, somebody's property or life, sometimes taking a life. So um, it wasn't a matter of, uh, for me anyway, didn't do it. Often it was evident the person did it. So then it was why and how, and and it was important to be able to ask and answer those questions because at the end of the day, the process requires a sentence to be imposed. And what that sentence is going to be could give a, a human being a chance if there was something that was open to a chance being given or uh, could end up really extinguishing a life, a human life. So when I saw these portraits, it's an odd thing because I dismissed them initially without seeing them. I'd heard about them. And three times, Tutu invited me to the studio to see the work. And three times, I failed to show up. The place where I was meditating was literally a block away. But for some reason, I had a meeting or I just forgot or, you know, like that. And so he sort of wrote me off. It's like, okay, this is a flake. I'm not showing my work to this person. <laughs> but one day, for some reason, I remembered in the timings that I, I called him and I said, can I come to your studio? So he said, okay. So I came and I looked and I realized, oh my goodness, this is really something beyond art right away I recognized it's something beyond art and um, we chatted and it struck me that he was like a hermit an urban hermit his studio space is a dark space in a building that's filled with creative people the owner of the building she's uh, now 86 and she's a portrait that you'll see in the, the work her she's an activist in Echo Park She is um, very, very feisty. And basically she's a patron in that she gives very low rents to artists. So everyone in the building is artist. But I felt a little sad because the work is all in his little studio. He has thousands of images, photographs on his journeys all over the world, um, brush paintings, calligraphies, drawings, and then these portraits. So I took them to, um, I, I told him, yes, I'll show you how to meditate. So that was the beginning. And I just um, think people should see the work because it's hard for me to say, you know, what they are beyond that. But that's the story of how they began to emerge. If left to his own devices, he would just keep drawing in his studio and that would be it. The world would not see these.
0: So Angela, you are an attorney, a teacher, a public lecturer, and you, you first came to national prominence as a spokesperson for the Korean-American community after the 1992 Los Angeles riots. And then uh, later on, you were um, had a position on President Bill Clinton's One America initiative. Um, you were, um, in 1997, you were appointed to his president's initiative on race, and um, So you've done a great deal of work. I won't do the whole resume. Uh, You've uh, been the chair of Senator Barbara Boxer's Federal Judicial Nominations Committee. Uh, You've been the lawyer delegate to the Ninth Circuit Judicial Conference. Um, In other words, um, you have a a really serious (laughs) resume on race, racism, justice, and related issues. Uh, But you're also a... uh, Uh, a teacher in the Rinzai Zen sect. Um, uh, So you bring this uh, uh, experience to this encounter with a man you described as an urban hermit, right? And out of that flowed a partnership. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, so just again bringing in background... uh, uh, two, uh, you were born to a Hakka family in Taiwan. What is a Hakka family? What does that mean?
1: Hakka means guest.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and Hakka is the people. Um, during the North and South Dynasty, there's uh, three time of migration from the north mm-hmm. because the Mongolia invasion. So those people would travel from the north, like, for example, Si and to Anhui and to Guangdong, and some of them go to Taiwan and Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So most early Chinese immigrants are Hakka. Mm-hmm. And I have, because I'm Hakka, so I can speak particular kind of Hakka dialogue. So when I travel in Silk Road, I met a person who is Haka, and he was uh, secretary to the party, the Communist Party, you know. And when I travel in Tibet, in Lhasa, I also met somebody who's Haka and received me and take care of me. And when I was in Guatemala, there's you know another Haka, so Haka was everywhere. And Haka is like Jew,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the sense of you know. Mm-hmm. In in the Chinese. An
0: international network.
1: Yeah, they were they were people who exile and they've mm-hmm. been pushed as a minority, mm-hmm. you know. And so, for example, you would never know that Joe and Lai is Hakka.
0: Yes. So yeah, and your father was an electrical engineer in Taiwan who managed a hydroelectric plant. He encouraged you to draw, uh, but then uh, he died suddenly, and this. Uh, completely transformed your life. Suddenly there was no breadwinner. Mm-hmm. And so your family was impoverished. Yes. Um, and uh, so uh, you made your way uh, uh, through your gifts uh, into the university and you became, through mastery of martial arts, um, a bodyguard for Shankar Shek and his family. Is that yes. correct? Yeah. And so then after that is when you came to the United States. Yes. Mm-hmm. What was it like to come to the United States? What were the circumstances under which you came to the United States?
1: Well, when I, I when I was a child, always, um, I have all, always have this dream to come to the United States, mm-hmm. you know. So, and at the time, at Taiwan, was political situation was like under martial law. And there's no uh, free press, and you can you can even able to really see the real art. You, you go to a museum, you don't. You know, at that time, early eighty, you know. So, um, and I landed in Berkeley, you know. Um, so it was a cultural shock to be in Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was hang out with. At the time, my ex-wife was a senior student of Berkeley political science, and her friend was from everywhere, South Africa, Nicaragua, you know. And so that was the first of my sort of social political awaken in Berkeley.
0: What year was this?
1: 1981.
0: How did you make a living in the early years? <laughs>
1: Well, I, I can give you an example. When i my last job in Taiwan was executive producer for the sixty minutes of mm-hmm. Taiwan Virgin. Mm-hmm. So um, I came here. My first job was washing the dishes in Chinese restaurant in mm-hmm. Christmas time.
0: What was that like? What was that like from being executive producer of the sixty minutes show on the? the best English-language Taiwanese... Uh, it's
1: a Mandarin, a Mandarin 60 Minutes yeah. Chinese,
0: yeah. Yeah, and so a, a very high-level job. Mm-hmm. Then you come to Berkeley, and you're washing dishes. What, what, what was that like for you?
1: It's very humiliating. Yeah. yeah. And um, um, it was sad, mm-hmm. too. And, you know, it, you feel this... I feel the exact feeling that when my father died, mm-hmm. because we were living in a very upper middle class life. We have chauffeur, we have dog, you know. Mm-hmm. Everybody would smile at me because I was a son of somebody, it's important. Mm-hmm. But when he dies, look like everybody look at me very differently.
3: Yeah.
1: I remember there's a the owner of the restaurant, and he look at me and I was washing dishes, you know, and he look at me and say, Look at you, you graduate best university, you work for sixty minutes, now you're washing the dishes. Mm. That's how I felt.
0: And did you have the inner resources to be able to deal with that transition at that time?
1: Actually I was I was pulled myself into study in Berkeley. I studied photography and I was actually most of the time hiding in Cody. Shakespeare's, mall and a bookstore. I was like sucking everything as possible I can, you know. So that was my substitute of, of uh, in a very difficult time. I thought mm-hmm. I was seeking the knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. To substitute to be looked down at it mm-hmm. and the.
0: Angela, when you were growing up, what kind of family were you living in and under what circumstances?
2: Mine was very um, typical, I think, of the era. My parents came in the 50s right after the Korean War, and they came as exchange students. Um, They were supposed to go back. They met here, and they, they fell in love, and they decided they'll try to stay because my father had a teacher at college that was willing to sponsor him if he stayed and continued his studies. So my parents decided they would stay, and um, they ended up raising four children. My mom was a school teacher, third grade, and my dad had wanted to go to medical school, but he he couldn't do it because I came along. I was a little early. And so uh, he ended up becoming a medical technologist and worked for the county hospital, and then he worked for a private hospital, uh, and then he worked for a, a private blood group. They were all um, at the same time. He worked three jobs to raise his family. And, and then my um, upbringing was kind of very typical. Like if you take any kind of Asian American studies classes, it's very typical. You know, first generation, second generation conflicts, um, sociology. You read about the generational phenomenon of... You know, the first generation may be very educated, but because of language and cultural barrier, they can only get so far. So there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the second generation to perform and do better and to be able to um, demonstrate that within their generational band. And so that's what we all four did. Um, All of us went to college. It wasn't even a question. All of us went to graduate school. Um, Everybody um, except myself, has a professional spouse. Mine is an artist. <laughs> it's the profession. Um, and uh, they all have the two story homes, literally. They all have two children. They all have one boy and one girl. They all drive uh, an SUV and um, one other very nice sedan. So that's their life. And so, and my parents, um, are, you know, strivers. I mean, they both don't understand. Like, why would you not take advantage of the fact that we provided you every opportunity, and why do you make those kind of choices? And the only thing I can think is that the love my grandmother gave me, Mm. my maternal grandmother. She really loved me unconditionally. That's why I think I really don't, you know, feel afraid about exploring and doing things, because I think that was the real inheritance that I got from um, my mother's side. And my father's side, mother, um, she had a sad life. So I think there's that aspect in my uh, how I am where things didn't work out for her so well in life. Um, Her husband left her. She was here, um, you know, unable to really speak the language. He remarried. In that generation, you don't do that and she never accepted the divorce. Um, So I think all of that translated into my family in some funny way, but I also um, grew up in an era when we were trying to get out of the war in Vietnam. There was the women's (sighs) movement happening. There was a free speech movement happening. There was an environmental consciousness that was starting to um, take shape. My sisters and brother, they all came a little bit later, so um, I don't think there was the same intensity of of awareness and feeling about what was happening and where you belonged in that equation. Um, So I, you know, stepped off what would be a conventional path, which was very unhappy for my parents. So there was a period of about five years where I was literally um, estranged from my family. They really didn't know where I was, what I was doing, why I was doing, and when we would intersect, it would be, um, you know, always devolve into an unpleasant experience. So, two got to experience a little of that <laughs> <laughs> once. Uh, oh, it had to do with my hat, right? Yeah, actually, it was this very hat. My, we were going for Thanksgiving dinner and. Yeah, my mother asked him to remove the hat because she said, what's that thing it looks like what the pilgrims wear? What do you call it? (laughs) And he was very courteous. He said, oh, does this bother you? He just took it off. You know, this is the end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. But, of course, it was more than the hat, right? Mm -hmm. He's an artist. Mm-hmm. He doesn't speak English very well. He's too skinny. <laughs> What's his, what is his? Family? Oh, he can say he's educated, but have you seen the degree? You know, so it's like that. You know, but it's for era where people needed to ha- have the badges, right? You had to have certain badges.
0: So, how did you become a spokesperson for the yeah. Korean American community Where's after March the <laughs> after the riots?
2: So, th- because of the mass media, that was my lesson from that experience. What happened? Um,
0: How did it happen?
2: So this is where karma comes in, right? It's not uh, what goes around comes around. Mm-hmm. right? That's not what karma is. You know, karma is, you know, things happen, events occur. That's it. You can say cause and effect, but in, a- in essence, events occur. So... Um, I happened to just come back from law school up north at King Hall at Davis, and I was the president elect of KABA, and the president was of KABA Korean American Bar Association. Thank you. Excuse me, Southern California, and the president in 1992 was a very good friend of mine who happens to be a transactional lawyer. So transactional lawyers don't speak very much. They like to just look at the contracts, make sure that A lines up with B and sub A lines up with sub B. So when all of this erupted in L.A., it happened that I had already been involved with the police misconduct lawyer referral service, so I knew that LAPD was settling cases very quietly for a lot of money where people had been beaten up badly or killed, mostly in South L.A. Almost exclusively victims were men of color. I happen to also be the president of WORK, women's organization Reaching Koreans, which was um, really just a community service group and a network, a support group. How old were you at this I was 37, um, maybe? 37. 37. Because I went back to law school. I see. After uh, doing other things. So I... I um, told John, the president, you know, when the media started calling, he said, I can't do this, Angela. Can you just come? I was a trial lawyer, so I said, yeah, I'll come. And I happened to do an interview with Ted Koppel, and that's when it started. That's when I really realized, oh, man, the media is
0: powerful in this country. And what, was your, what was your message on, on the media?
2: Well, George Bush was the president at the time, and I said something to the effect of I was really glad he was coming to L.A. so he could see the mess that his policies had created in our community, and that, um, you know, you can try and lay off this whole uh, implosion on blacks and Koreans, but frankly, that didn't ring true with me, because you're talking about two communities that have very little power in this society, and we better start looking deeper. And I talked about problems in the justice system. I talked about problems with the um, fact of investing money in Bunker Hill, which is north of the 10 Freeway, where there's already a lot of money. That's where the money sits in LA. Wells Fargo Bank, you know, Cooper's Library, you know, Ernst & Young, they're all on Bunker Hill at the time. Um, then you have south of the 10 Freeway, and there's no investment happening with double-digit unemployment. People willing and wanting to work but not having work. And then you looked at the fact of changing demographics in Southern California. We were changing much more rapidly than the rest of the state, I think, and the country. And there was no leadership on that fact. I mean, what are, we, what are we doing in the midst? All the leaders are driving their fancy cars and going to lots of meetings, and they're not paying attention to the fact that when one group that's identifiable displaces another, whether it's in housing or in schools or in... Health centers. Then you, you got the makings of conflict. It's just a common sense thing that you should be able to see if you call yourself a leader. So I think this resonated with a lot of people, and um, I got calls from all kinds of people at that point, and I actually it's a blur at this.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, those are the yeah. things
2: I remember. Yeah. And then people like Marsha Chu, who had been doing Black Korean <laughs> Alliance and other things, they stepped up because it was overwhelming and. Um, There were community groups. You know, I I was at a point where I said, look, this is not my job. I have a job over here, and there are people out there that are supposed to be going to meetings and saying things. But it's... I think it just was the way I said it, maybe, that, um, and the fact of being a lawyer. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a cred, right? Society looks at you and says, oh, she's a lawyer. She must be smart, so we'll listen. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, people like Marsha, who has a master's in social work from Columbia University, she's smart, too. But for some reason, you know, this, it just kept coming to me. Mm-hmm. So my teacher said, it's just your karma you know you're a person that. your
0: maybe, teacher being your Zen teacher
2: yeah my Zen teacher said maybe it's that you don't do so good in everyday life but in crisis
0: you're, you're, you're the one mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so two coming yes. back to your artwork yes. uh, you did uh, many previous bodies of work but uh, one was a series on Mao Zedong yes can you describe that
1: yeah, it's, it's called uh, Maoology. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a study of uh, a Icon, of Mao Jetong, you know. So uh, the reason why I did the Maoology is because I was very, at the time was making a decision whether I'm going to do a Chiang Kai-shek or Mao Zedong, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I realized that... At Yang this Kai-shek,
0: point you're in the United States? Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I, I was in graduate school at UCLA. Okay. And... Um, Jiang Kai-shek is very emotional, close to me, because I used mm-hmm. to guard him yeah. and Manan Jiang and mm-hmm. his son and his grandchildren, so I feel, you know, it's too much for me to use him as icon, mm-hmm. you know, so I thought, well, Mao would be,
3: mm-hmm.
1: would be a, a, a wonderful uh, icon, and so, and I thought Mao is, he's, as a personality, he's a poet, and and he actually has become an icon in China. So I thought, well, um, that's wonderful. I'm gonna use him. And at the time, I was struggling, just begin to, to, uh, um, to draw and create art. And I thought, well, just as you say, being, um, being a wash dishes and being fired three times as a waiter in Berkeley, you know, I said, whoa. <laughs> I, I, I wanna search my own personal identity. I said, well Mao would be a good icon for me to use mm-hmm. to project my my energy, my creativity, what I learned in school. Mm-hmm. You know. So I did that one day, I just I have my uh, 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 a a book, you know, I just write down 22 images. Say Buddha Mao, Meow Meow Mao, Chap Mao, Meow Meow Mao, Androidini Mao you know, and, you know, uh, Mickey Mao, <laughs> Minnie Mao, you know, so, so, and so I, I just, you know, um, and at the time I was, I was young, you know, I was in my mid, you know, mid 30 and, and I just have so much passion, hmm. you know, I, you know, I remember I did a Mini Mao, and at the time, graffiti was very popular. Mm. So I just sealed my studio and you know, bought a lot of cane and bought a lot of fans. Mm. So I I just make a, a mini minimal with spray can and I didn't sleep. I started and sleep for two hours and go back and spread it.
0: You know. So was this on canvas or was this on, on
1: canvas? A, yeah. So I, I was using you know minimal so uh, gangs Um so it's um, and. I think one of the important pieces was called chop mao. Uh-huh. Chop mao. I, I just, one, one day say, I talked to a friend, Steve. You know, I said, hey, Steve, let's go to Chinatown and get a chop. Uh-huh. You know, so I said, okay, let's chop a mao. You know, so uh-huh. I did that and I put four panels. I was living in a broken structure of a building. So I put that and I, I used that as a meditation. So I, it took me two months
2: to chop the mao. You know, so. so these so th- images, just so I yeah. can tell you, yeah. each one is about uh, five feet wide and eight feet tall. Uh-huh. They're so huge. Seven, they're seven by eight feet. Seven by eight feet. Mm-hmm. And they're huge, and they're in different medium. And the chop mark he's talking about is literally thousands of chop marks on four sheets of paper that are about the size of the sheets you're gonna see upstairs. But he put them together to make one face of Mao that looks like a photograph almost. And then he did seven more that hang on red silk. And one of them that's very interesting is, uh, it's kind of a political statement. It's using chop to see another image of Mao. Then you see this empty image of Mao in the center and then his thumbprint to make his father the faces are really interesting together, right? So that's called Invisible Mao.
1: So, yeah, I think that the whole, I was really dealing with with growing up under martial law and, and also under the huge propaganda about how horrified communism is about, you know. So so I was, it was almost like a therapy for me to deal with this gigantic icon. And it's horrifying to, to face it. You know, so I think that I just use the use that the process of creating all kinds of Mao to looking for who, who am I, you know, who is Tutu, you know.
0: Now that that exhibit, that work was on the cover of Asian Art News magazine, an influential English-language magazine in the U.S. and Asia. Uh, it uh, was exhibited in Belgium, Los Angeles. And Taipei, did that come before or after uh, the uh, series on, uh, on on silence? What is the name of the um timeless? Timeless. Yeah, timeless. That was before. So the mouth, so the mouthpiece your breakthrough yes, into with my
1: identity. first big body. Work. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: So what was it like for you, uh, having come from a you know respected family in Taiwan, then dropped into poverty? Fought your way back up into, you know, a real identity in Taiwan. Come to the United States and drop back into washing dishes. Fight your way back up into, you know, art school and so forth. And here's your first big breakthrough. What was that experience like?
1: Rollercoaster. <laughs> um, I think that eventually I, I, that up and down really helped me to see what is my personal suffering and mm-hmm. the war suffering.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: you know I can see that you you can be treated this way but you can walk in the street and people will treat you differently
3: mm-hmm. you know
1: so um, and the reason why I do one I realize that to be success to be have a 15 minutes of fame mm-hmm. in the end at the end of the day I feel very empty mm-hmm. so I, I I just I say well can you ship you know, that 2 to 2 you know, uh, into others. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, you know, I think my life is always up and down, up and down. So when I fall into the valley, I realize that, you know, I have to really do something. And that's where I tap into the path. Of,
0: mm-hmm.
1: You know, pay attention to the spiritual mm-hmm. path, so.
0: path. Tell us a little about the about the the Timelessness. What? Just say something about the Timelessness series. What was that?
1: Timeless is is a whole series of work that being a haka, always like a gypsy, travel everywhere, alone, homesick, and for me, I study history, you know, contemporary Chinese history, and history always very important to me, the memory of family, good or bad, suffering, violence. And so, Timeless was, it was for me to deal with my family history, coming from a very, my grandfather was a, sort of, came from a Ming Qing dynasty, immigrant to Taiwan before Chiang Kai-shek came. And they were land they were landowner on Lao Lane. But when Chiang kai came, they practiced policy called 30% against 70. So they took 70% of his land and uh, kept 30%. So um, so also my, my family history also has ups and downs. And the ups and downs create a lot of friction and violence. And as a child, I witnessed that. My Father's mother committed suicide when he was. She was 21 years old, and my father was four years old, and my aunt was two years old. She defied my grandfather, and using kitchen knife, cut her throat and died. So, the time, is, there's a painting called Grandma's Story, and it was about. I I want to revisit the story of my. Grandmother, why she's so beautiful, so well educated, at that age have two children, decide to end her life. So I said, you know, I always, you know, sitting a New Year dinner, and her, and my father told the story, and in tears, and other uncle relative talk about the story, you know. So uh, I think timeless is about going back to revisit my family history in a small context, also big, bigger context.
0: What were the images like?
3: Uh,
1: they are all using the photographs as as, as a proof.
0: Photographs of your family?
1: Family, and I use that to uh, 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 create a visual story.
0: Of and what that. was the medium that you used?
1: Uh, I was using all kinds of medium, oil, mm-hmm. acrylic,
0: mm-hmm.
1: chops, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I at the time I think I was very influenced by sort of um, postmodern approach okay. to art. So. so
0: the first breakthrough piece was the Maoology. Yes. And how did the uh, t- uh, timeless uh, work? How well was that received?
1: That was a, a very well received in mm-hmm. Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, I got a grant to? Mm-hmm. To able to exhibit in a uh, called Demon Foundation,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I got really good review and and a uh, uh, publicity, and uh, so uh, that that was, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, I got a really good response on the critic, and I think that even the um, uh, Taipei Contemporary Museum even send a critic
3: to
0: interview me. So, mm. um, I just want to read a few excerpts from other pieces of your story just to fill in. Uh, bef- before you started your painting work, you made documentary films, one on the story of breakdancing, uh, another a dialogue with Robert Heineken, a poetic documentary. Remind us of who Robert Heineken is.
1: Well, Robert Haneke is uh, one of the American uh, early pioneering photographer. Mm-hmm. At the time when I met him, he was the head of the photography department of UCLA, and his art—he called himself Dadaist. Mm-hmm. He's you know he he's a photographer, but he doesn't take picture. Mm-hmm. You know, he was using magazine. You know, for example, is this the magazine? Mm-hmm. There's all you know, sexy you know, Vox and mm-hmm. you know, all the magazine and and that the front and back when he dissolve he use that a way to t- so he so he's a conceptual photographer.
0: Was it a form of collage? Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, so I did a I did a um, a, a project interview him, but I was the whole idea was. Uh, I use in the same way how he think and how he process mm-hmm. art. To, to so I have, I have actually have three camera at the time, you know, and I have a a, a, a critic interview him, a woman. And so in, and so I was actually refer a lot about how he think, how he processed his mm-hmm. image. So the whole uh, documentary is was about. Is about how he think or how me think of him, and so that's okay. how, yeah. So,
0: at one point, you also did uh, a monumental four-section portrait of the Dalai Lama. When did that come in your evolution? When did you do that?
1: Well, that was uh, uh, quite a powerful experience because after the timeless, I think um, I was having. Sort of, I, I was kind of suffer, looking for a, a new new project to do, and at the time I was you know under a lot of financial stress, and uh,
0: was this after the timeless search? Yes,
1: and, this, and mm-hmm. so um, one day I just I had this tremendous feeling about uh, deep suffering feeling, so I. I just saw image. I say I need to express that. So I, I, I put four panel in, and I I draw passionately, and I begin the drawing and end it continuously without stopping.
0: Mm. How long did you draw for? Maybe four hours. Hmm. Mm. So repeatedly, as I've. And we've spent time together in Washington and here and so forth and have developed a wonderful friendship, for which I'm grateful. Um, but you do not hide uh, the role of, of suffering in your life. You, you refer to suffering as something that 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 has been a real part of your experience. Um, and so after these... Um, two successes, the the Maoology series, the Timeless series, um, uh, there's um, a period, as I understand, where you really went inward, uh, looking for where you were supposed to go. Yes. Is that true? Yes. Okay. So what strikes me is just going back over your life history, as you say, the ups and downs in the family history, very severe. I mean, suicides, you know, deaths, so on. And then, uh, you know, going down into poverty, then working your way up to be one of Chiang sheks bodyguards, then becoming a producer of the Taiwan 60 Minutes. So you could have stayed there and enjoyed a successful life in Taiwan. You had worked, your, but no. You throw yourself into this, you know, uh, uh, migration, this haka mm. migration, yeah. right? You're back to washing dishes again, back to real poverty at a certain level, yes. or, you know, very straight. Then you work your way back up with, with these series. And then again, instead of simply continuing to capitalize on those successes, you go into this period of, of introspection and exploration and again into very difficult financial circumstances. It sounds to me as if there's been this continuous need to be true to something, regardless of what the financial consequences were. Is that a fair statement?
1: Yes, yeah. because I, I remember the decision I made to become an artist. Yeah. It, at the time, I was living in New York mm-hmm. City, East Village, and uh, it's a basement. It was cold winter, and my wife just left me, and I was alone. I was sick.
0: You almost died.
1: I almost died
0: mm-hmm. of and, pneumonia. Huh? Of pneumonia.
1: Some kind. Of, yeah. You know, uh, I have a fever and, yeah. and I almost die. And actually, I pick up the pencil and start drawing the face of my dad, mm. my father. And after that. I have a revelation that that I would never make excuse not to make art because that heals me, actually. Mm-hmm. So since then, um, I would never find an excuse. So you can see the 108, the portrait, they are being drawn in, in the most sacred place in the temple they've been drawn in a bathroom you know when people give me or somebody's office so I realized that if you can make a space sacred then you become sacred and you can continue to create something out of silence
0: of course your description of almost dying in this cold apartment in New York your wife has left you, you have no money and so on Uh, you almost die and then you pick up a pencil and begin to draw your father that is a version of the ancient shamanic journey uh, where the the shaman goes to the edge of death Mm -hmm. uh, and there at the edge of death discovers an image or something Mm -hmm. and that brings them back to life Mm -hmm. but when they are brought back to life in that way, there is almost always a sense of sacred obligation of some Mm kind. And in in that sense, yours was that you would never make an excuse not to pursue art. Yes. Right. So when you uh, met Angela and you were working in this small studio in Washington, Urban Hermit. Echo Park. Yeah, Echo Park. Um, but you had not connected yet with Zen Buddhism uh, as a sustained practice, is that right? So when you came uh, into the practice of Zen Buddhism and with Angela visited the temple in Hawaii where you both Hmm. uh, practice and study, what was the shift in consciousness that took place that built on all this previous journey how would you describe what emerged from you, for you, when the practice of Zen became part of your life?
1: Well, I when I I think that when I went to the temple, I I was have this intensive feeling of, of the temple, the surrounding of the energy, and then I I realized that there's a lot of warrior, you know, samuraites and they would take the meditation very, very seriously. And the method that they're using was very, very powerful. And uh, because they are samurai that means that they, they th- their method is come from martial arts. And since I practice judo and that really gave me a very, very, uh, a deep insight about um, like searching who I am and how my mind, my body work. So when I see that, I in, immediately draw into it. And so, um, so that what just, you know, mm. what happens, I find something that I, I think that I realize that you can take, something so serious and, and, and the result is amazing
0: mm. so. When I met you a few years ago, we were uh, together with Angela uh, and my colleague Kira Epstein at a gathering of the Whitman Institute that our colleague John Esterley who's here with us um, put on. Uh, where is it based, John? I always forget the name of the place. Uh, oh, where we had the retreat? Yeah. That was at Shamanad uh, in Santa Cruz? Yeah, it's in Santa Cruz. And it was a room full of people. And um, I had actually had an interesting experience driving down with Kira. I had, I had discovered, this is just quote by accident, that um, I'd gotten really tired of my own story Hmm. And that my own story seemed like a crumpled set of clothes sitting on a chair in the corner. And I, you know, found that interesting. And and then um, I looked at it a little later and the clothes had become a straw man with my clothes on.
3: Hmm.
0: And then, you know, some time went by and I looked at it a little later and, and the the clothes and were now inhabited. Actually, the clothes, I should have said, my clothes were... Um, A clown's clothes, Mm. like a classic clown's clothes. I looked at it a little later, and now my clown outfit was filled with this very vibrant, kind of virile young man, kind of dark complexion. And he was sitting kind of tilted back in a chair. He was filing his nails and kind of whistling, and he'd kind of glance over at me once in a while. Mm -hmm. And I realized that my story was there, and I could go inhabit it when I wanted to, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't feeling very interested in my story. And so I came into this room, and naturally, when you come into a room, there are a lot of people exchanging stories, you know, and I wasn't very interested in telling my story. So I was looking around in the room because I felt sort of abstracted. And I saw, too, in this black uh, hat that he's wearing, and (laughs) in black, Mm On the far side of the room, he was standing up. There must have been 150 people in the room. And I realized that at that moment, he was the only person I wanted to talk to in the room. So I made my way across the room, and I said to two, Hi, my name's Michael, and somehow you're the only person I want to talk to right now. And so we began to talk, and then I I was introduced to Angela, and they were doing an exhibit of these uh, portraits, which are now hanging upstairs at Commonweal. And so um, Kira and I saw them. And the impact on me of seeing these portraits was very powerful because somehow you have found a way... uh, Many people have have commented on this that you have done portraits of. Somehow you found a way to capture something essential in us. Um, You take a photograph or several photographs, and then on a blue piece of paper using a silver pen, is it, or crayon?
1: Pencil, Graf- graphic pencil.
0: Yeah, graphic pencil. You do this astonishingly fine-lined uh, por- you know, portrait, at, at, in one sense realistic, but in another sense ethereal, because you are capturing something so that the, the configuration of the face actually is not what you would see in a photograph. Um, And it's as though you were receiving some kind of transmission. So I'd like to ask you, what is it that is going on for you? How do you choose the people that you do portraits of? And what is it that is going on for you when you then take the photograph and move it into uh, one of these drawings?
1: It's always come from intuition. Mm-hmm. You know, I I travel and I, I've met people. Either they're in a different places and, and it hits me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know. And I realized that I, I, I would just have the urge to capture them. Usually mm-hmm. I sent a couple shots and, and that was this original C. And then then I go through the whole process of drawing them. So I would be meditate or do any kind of meditation. So my mind is completely quiet, and then I would draw them. And then when I finish, I'll set again. So, um, so that's how I, you know, uh, um, that's the, how the process I work to create portrait. So.
0: And do you do the drawings in one set, uh, setting, or do you sitting, or do you come back to it? Do you work on it several times?
1: It's actually a variable. Oh, I see. You know, um, there's a time that I will be sitting five, six hours a day, and then I go in and so it all depends on how my mind uh, uh, at the time of my mind, you know.
0: How you know. how long does it typically take you to complete one of the portraits?
1: it can be one day
0: mm-hmm.
1: it can be two or three days it mm. can be four weeks mm. yeah. so uh, it, it, that's why I think that I was always surprised that when I was in a temple I can, and the, 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 the portrait is very very complex but for some reason because my mind is so clear and I'm sure that I'm probably in some kind of samadhi and then everything just flow hmm. and I can be in a place that my mind is fragmented, I have a lot of anxiety and I have to fight my anxiety into calmness and or struggle with it, then the portrait will come out very different.
0: You know what I love about the way you describe this too is so many people try to deal with their suffering by hiding it and pretending to some kind of enlightenment and you don't do that you know you just say you know sometimes when my mind is fragmented and I'm dealing with anxiety I work my way into that state and to me there's always something so refreshing about people who do not hide the suffering that we all live with um because when we hide it um we make the mistake of thinking it belongs to us alone and in fact the suffering is universal yes you know it's um it if i was talking to a friend francis weller in one of these conversations he's telling me about the practice in africa that that um they say when someone is suffering, if somebody constricts their suffering to themselves, they say they don't understand the suffering belongs to the village. You
3: know. mm-mm, mm-mm. It
0: belongs to the community. And of course, that's the Buddhist teaching. Suffering exists as the yes. first teaching. Angela, as you listen to this conversation, and what are your reflections? What has come up for you that you would like to add or contribute? Well... Mm-hmm.
2: I think about um, Tu's lineage and his relationship to his family, and it's quite extraordinary. I met his mother for the first time. She's um, 80 years old, and you can see the, the hardship she's had in her life. She wasn't raised to be a factory worker in a lumber business. She was raised to be a mother and the wife, you know, of somebody who was accomplished like his father was and, and refused to remarry when she had four little ones. And she was still young when he died. She was only 33, 32. And um, the grandfather actually was in a position to take care of them, but he was an unusual character in that, you know, Tu didn't mention, but this is a grandfather who had five wives, and his grandmother was the first wife. And that first wife had sort of a tension with the second wife because Tu's father was the first wife's first child and a son. So that has significance culturally. And then Tutu was the first wife's first son's first child, a son. So that also had significance. So for him, it wasn't just he had a comfortable life, but he was such a special child that his grandfather would have him sleep in his bed with him for many years. Until you were like five or six or something, yeah? You adult. You were summoned to be there and sleep right next to the grandfather. And there was a certain way of teaching um, that he was brought up with. So um, certain lessons that he carries with him. So even if he has nothing in his pocket, his being is so rich. People feel it. I've watched now for many years, you know. When we traveled to South China... We went with a group of, you know, fairly wealthy people from Hawaii, doctors, business people, people who could retire early because they'd done well in life. And we had saved and actually borrowed a little money to be able to do this trip because it was a special trip for us in that it wasn't just touring, it was going to some textile villages and being able to see specifically the textile work. And he he really wanted to go, and we figured out a way to do it. We went. Um, But Tutu... Uh, Of all the people on the bus, he was the only one who could speak the language, not just Mandarin, but also Hakka and Fukunese, which came in handy at various places because of the people that we met. And then while we would be as guests sitting in a restaurant having our dinner, two at some point would get up and bring a bottle of wine or some beer out to the truck, you know, to the drivers, because the drivers for all these tour buses, they eat outside at a campfire. And basically, he'd sit with them. He doesn't smoke. They all smoke, but, he, but he'd have a good few beers with them. And uh, you know, I could see he could he can move anywhere. Really, we were in D.C. on Embassy Row. We were, you know, um, traveling, you know, uh, all over the country this last couple of years. Anywhere, he's fine. He's fine, and he he finds a connection. There's something about. Uh, he used to say to me when I would worry about, gee, should I sh- change my job? Should I quit my job? I have all... What about health care? And, about- <laughs> and, you know, he would just say, uh, when I would introduce him, he's an artist, he's a struggling artist. And he. one of the first times I said that, he, sa- he said, I don't say that anymore, but he said, stop calling me a struggling artist. I'm not a struggling artist. I live more richly than most of the people you introduce me to. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, that's a quality about him and the determination and mm-hmm. the survival and I think he really is the first person who taught me it doesn't matter how much you love somebody mm-hmm. you're going to die your own death so mm-hmm. in other words um, I, I've just caught glimpses glimpse of it I don't think I've ever said anything to you but I've just caught glimpses of this that um, you know, we'll be training for example. And even though he really cares for me, you know, meditation he training. Do my training, meditation for me. training. Not just meditation oh, okay. but in anything, you know, I have to do it myself. He's not gonna do it for me. He's not gonna die my death for me, he's not gonna live my life for me, and living it together doesn't mean that I have his life or he has my life, right? So what we know is we're walking the Dharma path. That's what we know. And it doesn't matter what else is going on. And we have to make our way and be responsible in the world. But I know in the end, it will be my own demise. How I go from this place will be my way. How he goes will be his way. And hopefully both will be clean. That's what we're you know training for, to be able to leave without any regret.
0: <coughs> So continuing in that vein, Angela, for a moment, um, you've been an extremely powerful advocate for justice and, and racial equity. Um, and now you're also this Rinzai Zen priest and, um, and in partnership with two. And given, yes, you will both die your own deaths, but in the meanwhile... <laughs> um, what is your vision of the path that you hope the two of you are taking together uh, of service what is the service that you are seeking to be together in the world
2: Hmm. I don't think we really have a, very much of a vision I know we often talk about what it is to be kind but not in a Sort of, you know, sticky way. Uh, And to be compassionate, but again, not in a sentimental kind of way, because there's not enough of that in the world. So, and of course, we've both chosen, you all met Mike Sayama, you can feel what kind of being he is those of you that were with us for the weekend you can see
0: again a zen priest from your he's, temple
2: he's a zen master from our temple, zen master from your temple and he's very um crisp he's very clear he can be extraordinarily kind and caring and he once told me never ask me a question again because you're not worth my time to train <laughs> <laughs> right so that's how,
0: how it's hard to imagine cutting, Mike said that as <laughs> <so? laughs>
2: <laughs> no really yeah. um you know it can be like that right. with him right but I think our hope is that we bridge from the East to the West. I mean, I'm, it's funny. He always says to me, you're not really Asian. You're American. You just look Asian. <laughs> because, because I was born here, right? Mm-hmm. And I have very much... Uh, my parents' generation wanted us to assimilate, mm-hmm. right? So he is um, coming from a, a place and a people. He, it's not a mistake he studied history. It's not a mistake that he has an ability to bridge beyond words. He doesn't need words. I'm in a society that doesn't value silence. I'm in a society that says, squeaky wheel gets the grease. I'm in a society that says, you know, if you don't stand up for yourself. I'm in a society that wants to process the hell out of everything using words. What I found in race relations is the more words you use, the bigger mess you make. Because the words don't match up with the reality that people live. So I'm learning to use less words, although it doesn't seem like it right now. <laughs> he is learning to use a few more words. I think what we're doing is trying to bridge. He, the reason why he sh- is sharing his work is at least the way you explained it to me too, to us. You said, because this is my gift, I realized this was my gift. That moment when he was dying, he had been away from his gift. He was trying to be what his mother wanted. You know, she was a widow. She—he's the eldest son. Traditionally, he should be taking care of her in a very little literal sense, and can't, not able to do that as an artist. So he was trying to to do the thing that his the society would expect of the first son of a first son. But um, he was almost dead, and he just decided at that moment that if I live. I will accept my gift, and I will give it to all of humanity. Mm. That was the dialogue that went into his head, as I understand it, me. So, he lived.
0: And that is truly the shamanic journey. That is truly the journey of the wounded healer. Yeah, that's what the wounded healer is. That was
2: the dialogue.
0: Two, uh, clearly you're comfortable in many places, but you've expressed to me that one of the places you're comfortable is Bolinas. yes. (laughs) What do you like about this place?
1: Well, I feel this uh, it's a very earthy consciousness hmm. and I, I feel like everybody live here is very conscious about the opposite direction of a very materialist uh, 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 corporate control society heading. I think this is this is a community who, Who do everything Mm -hmm. reverse? Mm -hmm. So I feel very much at home here.
0: And what does Commonwealth feel like to you? Healing. Mm. Good. I'd like to just open it up to the audience for any uh, brief comments, uh, questions. Please uh, keep the questions brief if you can and say your name um, first. Yes. My name is Frank Eckenhoff. Yeah. And I was struck by your question about suffering and uh, in your life and how it connects to your creativity. Mm-hmm. And as you've maybe experienced that and thought about it, what do you think the connection is between your own suffering and the creative process itself? Uh, have you had any insights or intuitions about that?
1: Well, when you suffer, it's so unbearable. You really can't think too much about it, you know. Usually, when I feel suffer, I, I want to go somewhere. I can even go and drink, or I can sleep. So I say, well, it seems I can draw. Then I usually pick up somebody who are really kind to me, or or somebody who carry energy of suffering in their face. Uh, like the face I did of Peter, was here. And when I first met him, he, I feel he's carried all this suffering. And I just drawn to capture that. But at the time, I'm not suffering. But I have experience of suffering. So I connect them together. Mm-hmm. And so it's a different stage for me to create those art. There's a period that I'm truly suffering. I can't help not to do something about it, but there's a time I feel sound and healthy, but when I feel someone suffering, I say, well, I can really able to express that into a piece of paper. You know?
0: mm. Other questions, comments? stunned into silence. Yes, John. Uh, John Esterly, I was wondering, uh, Angela, too, if you could elaborate a little bit more um, on Angela, your comment where you were kind of a combination of the two of you around almost these different approaches to uh, dialogue and Mm -hmm. reflection, um, and kind of linking to Michael's (coughs) earlier question about your vision going forward. And, I wonder if you could talk some about how you how you hope these portraits might be um, incorporated into um, sparking a deeper dialogue and reflection among different people.
2: Um, okay so first of all we we realize our name is and O H T U. Also Oh, two. and as in take a breath as in also that's what we do that's what I refer to when I call training it's all about breath um, so in our sharing the images he's, he makes the images I'm what Malcolm Gladwell would refer to as a connector type My greatest joy comes in putting people together that probably should be put together. Uh, So I want to put his art together with different spaces where um, something could happen that might help people breathe more freely um, and then hopefully come to some peace in some way. So we are talking about using the work. We've tried it this last year, thanks in part to the Whitman and to the California Endowment and a couple of private donors. Um, We have been able to um, use the work in the service of the federal courts where people were convicted of crimes but had an opportunity to earn probation or dismissal of the charges by doing a presentation, and it got into the courts as a a way to manage stress, so we teach you meditation technique. But instead of coming in and teaching you meditation technique, we show you art. Mm -hmm. Then we talk about the art, Mm -hmm. and the question always comes up, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. There's the opening for teaching meditation, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. With kids who are kids of farm laborers, we did it with somebody in the Napa Valley who works with... um, very economically disadvantaged youth who uh, are going to go off the rails if they don't get involved in something productive. And so there happens to be this program. And we brought the work there. And we were warned several times this is an unruly crowd. Don't be offended if they just get up and walk away or start opening their potato chip bags. And, you know, we went into that space. The, we introduced ourselves. Then we showed the art. And again, the same effect quiet. And then, wow, how did you do that? Again, there's the opening. Um, We went to a literary club where there was a conflict between the leadership. You know, one generation leadership sees things different from another generation of leadership. And they really couldn't work it out internally, so they asked us to come. And we, again, brought the art, and we had them do a way of looking at the art when they just do it however they want versus a way of looking at the art when we coordinate timing and sensitivity to others that are waiting to see and moving to the next one and really taking the opportunity to feel what you feel when you see this piece for the time that you have. And they processed, you know, what it felt like to just really be in sync with each other and view the art versus just going however they wanted. it. Uh, and again, the question came up, how did you do that? <laughs> The opening. So you see it's a powerful tool. It's different from this art and healing where we you make the participants make art, mm-hmm. some of whom are not artists and really don't want to make art because it kind of reveals that they're not as artistic as the next guy or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, this is we just sharing. It's the concept again of sharing. And then when that happens, because it's so powerful, people ask, how do you do that? And then that's the opening. He talks about meditation, and then I show them what it is, and then he talks about, you know, how it can happen in the garden or in your kitchen or with your children or whatever. So.
0: Ying Ming and Angela O. Oh, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you.